I want to read to you um, the story of the, uh, the, the account of the, uh, the prediction of the birth of John the Baptist with an angelic visit to his parents, or particularly to his father, Zechariah. And uh, in reading this, we're, we're, we're taking up a theme that we were addressing in the autumn in the series on the Nazarites, uh, three stories in Scripture of special individuals who were set aside for the purposes of God in a unique way. And we began looking um, at the lives of Samson and then Samuel. And now we've come to the, the, the last major story of the Nazarites, this particular man, John the Baptist, who is cousin of Jesus and a prophet who kind of announces the arrival of Jesus, identifies him as the Messiah um, when, in his preaching, and uh, has a, a mighty, mighty impact among the nation at the time. Very well known um, and really quite a, a, a compelling and charismatic figure. And this, is about, this, this story is about um, his conception, really, and how, how he came to be. So let me read to you then from verse 5. We're told that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, part of the reason why Luke um, explains at length here, really, what stand-up, extraordinary, pious, and godly people they were was because their childlessness might have been read at the time as, as, as a result of their, of their ungodliness, as a, way of, as a kind of judgment. And Luke wants us to know that isn't the case at all. These are stand-up, godly, godly couple. They just didn't, they couldn't conceive. And so that's their background. And he goes on and says, Now while he, this is Zechariah, was serving at, as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, this is a, a ceremony that would happen twice a day, morning and evening. And uh, there would, a single priest would enter into the, the holy place where he would approach the altar of incense and burn there. And... Um, the, the, the extraordinary thing is that there were 18,000 priests roughly at the time of Zechariah. They were div divided into 24 divisions. And the way in which a priest would be selected for this extraordinary privilege of being the one who would burn the incense was that by, this, by this almost random process of drawing lots. And so you were only allowed to do this once in your lifetime. You know, this is his profession. He's a priest. I'm sure he has many other responsibilities but this is the pinnacle for him. This is the great, great opportunity for him. And he gets to do it once in his lifetime. And it seems that he's uh, doing it in the evening gathering, no doubt, because of the, the, great, the great multitude outside the temple. So he's already, he's already in a state of heightened alertness and uh, emotion, I suppose, in this particular moment. What an extraordinary thing for him. Then we're told that there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, we don't exactly know why he was so afraid. We do know that he was not expecting to see anybody. This is a place in which um, no one could just enter. And uh, it's possible he just felt a bit jumpy. Um, my wife is a very non-anxious person, but one exception to that is when she sees me, usually somewhere in the house where she doesn't expect to see me. It's not like I'm hiding in cupboards or anything like that, but she'll walk into a room and see me and just scream in my face. This happens probably two or three times a week, and usually through no fault of mine, I'm just, I'm just being me in the house, but it's terrifying to her. Occasionally, I do do it deliberately because it's just it's more fun that way, but... Um, it could be that he's just, just shocked. There's a man next to him in the kind of dingy environment inside the, most holy, inside the holy place in the temple. Uh, but more likely, I think, there's something in the presence of this angel that evokes fear. Often in Scripture, people are afraid in the presence of holiness. 
because holiness exposes what's inadequate in us. And uh, the presence of God would have no doubt have been with his angel there in that space. And Zechariah is terrified, as you or I would be. And so the angel speaks to him. says, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Father, speak to us, we pray, as we begin to understand and wrestle with this, the story of this extraordinary man in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us or tracking with us in this series, you'll know that um, the studies of the Nazarites have been presented certain challenges. A couple of you have remarked on this to me, even in reading the, the accounts. The challenge being that even though these are enthralling stories um, that we've been looking at, really powerful, dynamic stories of God's amazing works in, in individuals, at the same time, there's a gap, isn't there? The distance of millennia and of cultural distances and what God was doing in history, a gap between their stories and what it means for us to live out faithful Christian life in the present moment. And so we found this, I mean, we're looking at the story of Samson. Samson is, is literally a soldier, a warrior, and uh, he's, he's empowered by God for that purpose. And it's not much that I can apply in my day-to-day life on the back of that. Um, similarly, um, Samuel, he grows up as a prophet priest within the temple, a building that is no longer in existence and is part of a, the history of God's people, but no longer what God intends. We are the temple. We're in a different age, a different time, and God works in and through us in very different ways. So reading these accounts, you have to think carefully about how to, on the one hand, understand the essence, the heart, the passion and devotion that drove them, but also we feel a distance in terms of the way that they worked out their faithfulness to God. We can't imitate their actions necessarily. And, it, you know, often when you're reading the Bible, these sorts of questions are raised. How do I apply this to my present moment? How do I understand its meaning for me and what God wants of me now? And that's certainly more difficult when we read the story of Samson and Samuel. But now coming to the third story of this particular Nazarite, things are different. John is he's a bridge character who sits between the Old Testament which ends with the book of Malachi, and the New Testament, beginning with the book of Matthew. These two books, that, these two, um, the two testaments with Christ at the center. John the Baptist is a figure who kind of bridges those two different eras or ages in God's dealings with man. In one way, you can look at him as the, the pinnacle, the climax, the finality of what God was doing under the old patterns. He's the last of the prophets. Um, with a gap between him and Malachi, who was 400 years before him, and all who preceded. He's the last of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And the old, all of the Old Testament is essentially a story that's building to the arrival of Jesus. It's pointing. It's a great sign pointing to the arrival of Jesus in history. And John the Baptist is the, sh- the sharp point on that sign. 
So he, he's the culmination of everything that, that, was, that had happened before Christ arrives on earth. But at the same time, he's also the beginning of the new thing that God's doing. He is literally the first person to give witness to Christ as Messiah. And this happens in an extraordinary way even before he's born. If you glance over at verse 41, you'll see that when Mary, Jesus' mother, goes to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, and uh, Elizabeth's a little bit further on in her pregnancy, we're told that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, this is John, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So John, even there, before he's born, is the first one to give witness to the extraordinary reality of the arrival of the Son of God, Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful man and amazing story this is. And so this is why it's important to us. John is this bridging figure. Just a, a week or two ago, um, there was a story that hit the news of the passing away of a man called Mike Sadler. Mike Sadler was um, the last survivor of the original, um, the original uh, group who formed the SAS when they were formed in the 1940s in the deserts of North Africa. And uh, in many ways, they, they, kind of, they represent the bridging of two eras, you know, the beginning of modern warfare, the beginning of the technological age in warfare and all those kinds of things and covert warfare and targeted warfare. But Mike Sadler was also a relic of the time that went before him. There's a story of him uh, navigating across the desert with no map, no lights, and taking 18 or so vehicles with him, 70 miles navigating by the stars to arrive within 200 feet of an airbase that they were going to destroy in North Africa. And of course, that, that's as old school as it gets. There's not many people who can do that these days without GPS to help them. So he's kind of like the last of, of a bygone age, but also the beginning of a new, a new way of doing things, a new way of, of waging war. Well, John's a bit like that. And because he's the beginning of the new, he sits in Scripture as a kind of prototype of, what, of, um, of, of, the, of the new way and what God wants in and through his people. And this is how we're going to read this story. We're going to read it with two eyes. One is to understand him, what God was doing specifically in and through this unique man, irreplaceable in his, his, his role and purpose in history, but also to understand that he stands up for us as a kind of prototype or a model of what God wants for every one of you. The kinds of things that God had destined for his people, for you and I. What are these things? How is John an example and a kind of model for us as uh, in, in desiring to live for God and for Christ? This is what we're going to wrestle with. Let me show you a number of things that come out from Gabriel's speech, announcement to Zechariah from verse 13. Here's the first. The first thing you see is that John was supernaturally conceived. That's what Gabriel says to Zechariah here. And he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I've no doubt. I mean, commentators wrestle with it, but I think it's obvious what his prayer was. His prayer was for a child. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you should call his name John. Now, the attentive ones among you who've been with us for the last few months will notice something very strange here which is that we've heard this before, haven't we? When we read the story of Samson, didn't an angel appear to his mother and then to his father? And when we read the story of Hannah, wasn't she also barren? In both those cases, these were barren mothers, couples who were unable to conceive, and suddenly God intervened. Samuel's mother Hannah was praying at the temple and she had an assurance from the priest that she's going to have a son and surely, sure enough, she conceived Samuel. And so three out of three, these three unique figures in Scripture, these Nazarites, all of them are born to parents who could not conceive. By a special act of God, by a supernatural work of God to bring them into existence for his purposes. 
And I asked this question some weeks ago, but I'll ask it again. Why is God working in this strange way? Why is this pattern working out in these three stories? And the answer that I, I think is, is true of them is this, that all of them were born into moments of darkness and oppression and decline for God's people. Oppressed by forces without and declining spiritually within the nation itself. All three of them were born into that situation. And God shows that in order to, in order to um, bring about the kind of leadership that he wants, the kind of godliness and devotion and spirituality and zeal that can begin to turn the situation around, can begin to arouse God's people and push back against darkness, God does not look around and survey the scene and, and seek to discover who might fit the bill, who might be qualified, who might, who might have the right qualities. Instead of doing that, he rather starts from scratch. As though to show us that the kind of devotion and passion and consecration that he desires is not something that originates in us but must be something that originates in God. It has to be a supernatural, even miraculous work of God to form a person to love him like that. And that seems to me to be a, a marker of these three Nazarites. God, he constructed them for the moment that they were born into in history. But this is where... I want to show you, as I will for each of these points, how this resonates actually with our story as believers in Christ. The Bible tells us that your faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of him, is not a natural phenomenon. But that rather the moment that you began to experience faith in your heart, even tiny faith, but faith nonetheless, faith that enabled you to trust him and believe that he was the son of God, he's taken your sins. The moment that that saving faith became true of you, a miracle took place in your life. It's called the new birth in one passage. It's called regeneration. It's called in 2 Corinthians 5 that you were that you're a new creation. Let me read you that verse that Paul writes there. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, nobody is a genuine follower of Christ because of anything natural in you or I. You might look at it externally and think that, well, it was just a change of mind, a rational process, something like that. The Bible says, no, 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 no. You are dead. You are absolutely incapable of believing in, never mind trusting in God and following Christ, God intervened in you and you became a new creation. Something began on the inside of you. A new life was birthed inside of you. So that the life that you are now living as a child of God is no less supernatural in its conception than the life of John the Baptist predicted here by Gabriel to his father. And there's a parallel, therefore, that if God went about that work of selecting and raising or of, of creating this, this boy in order to raise him up into his purposes, when he goes about taking hold of you in order to bring you into his kingdom, in order to put his life in you and so that you are supernaturally conceived within the Spirit, when God does that, he does it because he has purposes for your life just as he did for John. You're not an accident. You didn't come in through the back door. There's no such thing. God wanted you. He made you. And the life in you is miraculous and supernatural. That's what it means to be a Christian. He was supernaturally conceived, and so are you. Here's another thing. He was supernaturally conceived for greatness. Gabriel immediately adds here. In speaking to Zechariah in verse 14, he says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. There was to be something extraordinary and distinctive and unique about this child 
in becoming a man and what he would accomplish and do in and through his life. Why? In what way was he great? Well, I think Jesus gives us something of the answer to this. In Matthew 11, this is three decades later, of course. But in Matthew 11, Jesus is, is, is asked a question about his cousin and begins to talk about John the Baptist. And he says about John that he is the fulfillment of prophecies that were spoken four to 700 years earlier. 400 years earlier in the book of Malachi is the one he quotes. He says that this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It's a quote from Malachi 3. Jesus says, this is the guy. We've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. He's arrived. John is it. And there are a couple other prophecies about John in, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and in Malachi. So there's a sense in which, of course, I mean, he's obviously he's a unique individual. There's a greatness about him because God, God predicted his coming and what he would do in, with his life. And, of course, the way he lives his life. He embodies a greatness in his spirituality, his boldness, his forthrightness, his zeal for God, his clarity on his mission, the sacrifices he makes, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, calling, calling uh, the multitudes to himself to preach to them in the fiery way that he did. This man is great by any measure. And his impact reverberated through the population of the nation. He had a, he had a profound impact upon people and calling them to God and to righteousness. But listen, Christ agrees with that verdict, by the way. So he confirms what Gabriel says about him. When Gabriel says he'll be great, Jesus says the same thing. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is agreeing with what the angel predicted. But here's what's so fascinating and extraordinary. In the next breath... Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If John was great, Jesus is saying that the least of us, the most immature, the newest to faith, the most struggling, the most doubting, the weakest among us is greater than John the Baptist. And you might ask, well, in what way and how is that even possible? By what measure could any of us be greater than John the Baptist? And I think the answer is because you and I know things John never knew. We have a clearer sight on Jesus than John did. And Jesus was John's special subject. If he'd been on Mastermind, his question would have been questions about the Messiah. John was an expert in that. But you and I know more about the Messiah than John did. Why? Well, because he, he died. He was executed before the, the culmination of what God was doing in and through Jesus. So although John was privileged with the calling, the power, the anointing, the grace that was on his life for the particular task that he was given to be a forerunner to Jesus, nevertheless, he, he's part of the old and he never got to fully enjoy the new and you and I, we know more than him. And there's a greatness invested in that, that you, you live on the other side of the cross in which you understand God's saving plan, how he can wipe away the sins that have so plagued you and the darkness of your mind and cleanse you and give you grace and forgiveness. How his resurrection from the dead means that you have an imperishable hope, an unwavering hope that you can be fearless in life because you know that your resurrection with Christ is guaranteed you know things as weak and, and, and as small as you feel yourself to be as a believer, there's a greatness in what you know that eclipses anything John understood or knew. And here's how one commentator, Don Carson, put it. He said it like this. He said, John was the greatest of the prophets because he pointed most unambiguously to Jesus. Lots of the prophets in the Old Testament are pointing forward to the arrival of Jesus. And they say extraordinary things. But John was the clearest. I mean, he quite literally pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who pointed most unambiguously, most clearly to Jesus. But then he goes on and says, Nevertheless, even the least in the kingdom. Is that you? Is that me? 
even the least in the kingdom, is greater yet because he or she points to Jesus still more unambiguously than John the Baptist. Has that thought settled into your heart? The difference that God can make in and through your life because you know things even John didn't know. He was supernaturally conceived. He was destined for greatness. Here's a third thing about John. He was called to a life of separation and of holiness. Essentially the same idea. This is what the angel then says about him. He says that um, partway through uh, verse 15 there, it says that he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, why, why was Gabriel giving Zechariah this very specific instruction? One instruction, one requirement for John before he's born. Of course, the answer is not, um, is not that the Bible is against alcohol. I think that there is, there is much to encourage us that God is, is for alcohol in many respects. Not to drunkenness, not to the lack of self-control, not to ruining your life, none of those things. But as a gift from God, along with so many of his other gifts, to be enjoyed, to be received with thanksgiving. But the reason why this is specified about John himself, of course, is, is shorthand for what we looked at some months ago when we unpacked number six, the, the, the origins of the Nazarite vow. That in that vow it stipulated that certain individuals who wanted to live a life of, of, of total consecration to God, whether for a season or for the entirety of their lives, that they need to refrain from anything from the vine, the wine and so on. They can't touch a, touch a dead body and they, they couldn't shave their head. And I think that the angel is speaking in shorthand here about John and saying before he's born, that he's to be a Nazarite. And the meaning of that, of course, is this. That God is saying about the arrival of this boy, I want his life. I want it entirely. I want to possess him so that I can use him for my purposes on the earth. That's the purpose of holiness, friends. Holiness is belonging to God more completely, more fully. We often think of holiness negatively, and there is a negative aspect. It's even here, cutting things out of your life. There is a necessity to that, but it's not because we, 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 we revel in the negative. It's not. It's because we're cutting things out and so that we can possess and be possessed by God more completely. That was the purpose of the Nazarite vow. That was the purpose of holiness, and that is what God is saying about John the Baptist. He's saying, I want him entirely so I can use him. I love how um, Paul explains this principle to Timothy, a pastor, a younger pastor. In 2 Timothy, he says, he describes it like this. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, in other words, the best crockery, the best plates and dishes and jugs and that that you might have in a wealthy household, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, you know, the fancy dinner parties and the posh guests and all that kind of stuff, and some for dishonorable. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What Paul's articulating there is the principle that God wants holy vessels. He wants people who, 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 are, who are cleansing themselves, as it were, of what is dishonorable so that they can belong to God more completely. Why? So that he can use you for his glory. And that's what God is saying about John before he was born. He used to be a holy vessel, separated, that I can use him. But friend, if that was true of John in a somewhat unique way, as the capstone and the final representative of all that went before Jesus, it is true in a better, fuller, more complete, more joyful and happier way about you if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are, not, you are called to extraordinary holiness because Christ has wiped away your sin entirely. And you're called to holiness not through 
asceticism, as John was, asceticism is the, is the, 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 the effort to live a simple life, and a, a life of, of, of self-imposed poverty, of simplicity, of hardship, in order to be more, more zealously dedicated. John, John's calling was like that. And that's certainly, some people have benefited from that. Paul expresses great skepticism about whether that's really helpful for Christians. But that's not the point. The point is this. The point is about having your heart belonging to God. How do we live holy lives? In Romans chapter 8, Paul answers it in this way. He says that Christ, he says about God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Christ taking the penalty of our sin on the cross. In order that, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those, those two verses in Romans 8 are a window into the immense privileges of what it means to be a child of God living this side of the cross, that all of your sin was taken away and nailed to the cross, Christ taking it upon himself, bearing the penalty. In order that, he says, in order that you can be full of the Holy Spirit and live life in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, but living a holy life. And if you're a follower of Christ, friend, God has begun a work in you to form and to forge that kind of holiness. So that what was extraordinary in John, as a unique individual among Israel at the time, becomes the norm, the standard. What God is producing within his people, the church, those of us who call Christ our Lord. Friend, do you understand what God has called you to and what he is doing in you? Let me show you a couple more things. John, it really connects with what we just said. John was filled with the Holy Spirit for this purpose. Gabriel says to Zechariah there that he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, to understand the, the, the specialness and the uniqueness of what God was saying about John before his arrival, you have to understand that this is, this is still living on the Old Testament era. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did come on individuals, but it was individuals. Certain individuals called for certain tasks, anointed or empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish specific things with their lives. And so you can read through the Old Testament stories and you, you will see that these, 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 these uh, individuals are, are pointed out. I think of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis, who is, is raised up to be the governor of the nation. And Pharaoh, of all people, sees it in him. He says, where else will we find a man like this man, in whom is the spirit of the mighty God? Because he can interpret dreams, and he's given wisdom, so he can actually govern the nation. Pharaoh sees it, and he promotes him because of it. Then there's a, a story, another one, I think this is my favorite example, is in in the book of Exodus, when uh, God's people are traveling around the wilderness and God gives instructions about the building of a tabernacle, a tent, where God's presence will be at the heart of the community. And the tabernacle, which was kind of like the temple before the temple existed, was to be built. But in order to build it, they needed someone to do the work. And so Exodus 31 tells us that God said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri. It says, And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and so on. I love this story because it kind of breaks our paradigms a little bit about what we, we understand it means to be full of the Spirit. I think we tend to think that being Spirit-filled is to empower us for explicitly spiritual things. But what you're discovering here is that the Spirit of God fills this man to, to give him grace and a special anointing for craftsmanship. 
which tells us, of course, that the Spirit of God, the God who created all things, can empower you and I as creative beings in whatever calling he's put you. I think that's wonderfully encouraging. But it's just one more example in the Old Testament. You've got Joseph, you've got Bezalel. You move on, you've got Joshua. Then you read the book of Judges, and these guys are specifically anointed by the Spirit. But my point is this. It was a rare occurrence. It wasn't normal. It wasn't something that anyone could claim to have experienced or or encountered that, that filling with God's Spirit. And John, in many ways, is the last one of what went before. In a special way, of course, because he's filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, which I think is why when pregnant Mary walks in to see pregnant Elizabeth, John, baby in the womb, the Spirit in him awakens him to start kicking and moving. There's a witness even then. It's a Spirit birth witness. And so John's anointed. He's anointed for boldness. He's anointed for preaching, to be a prophet, to be, to, be, to be godly, to be a confrontational and dynamic figure in the nation. All of that is true about him. But my point is this. What was true about John that made him distinctive and different is true about you if you're a follower of Christ and a marker that you are indeed a believer. In other words, all God's people have been given the gift of God's Spirit to empower you to live the life of service and holiness and the calling that God has put upon you. How do I know that? Well, a couple of verses here. In Romans 8, Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What Paul means there, I think, is that anybody who has experienced the the life of God that has drawn you into the family of God and enabled you to profess Christ as Lord. In other words, you've crossed the line of faith. you become a follower of Jesus. The only way that that was possible is because the Spirit of God came in, moved in to your life. The Holy Spirit is in you, friend. He's, He's with us in this room. He inhabits his people. Paul puts it in a slightly different way in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, I want you to understand. And he's saying this to a church that was arguing about who had the best spiritual gifts. So there were those who were looking down on others and those feeling inferior to others. And he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, listen, you need to re-understand the whole situation differently. You can't even begin to confess that Christ is Lord of your life unless the Spirit's in you. And you're all confessing Jesus is Lord. So he's in you all. So don't start to imagine that there are those who are superior, those who are inferior in this regard. God is in you or else you wouldn't even believe. Now, I do, also, I do also recognize that the New Testament, I think, clearly teaches us that even if the life of God is born in you by the Holy Spirit, you nevertheless can and should ask God for more. When Jesus is teaching us about uh, prayer in Luke 11, he says, you know, you, I won't retell the whole parable, but he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God wants to give His Spirit to us in abundance, in increasing measure. And this is why I think Paul also in Ephesians 5 says, don't get drunk on wine, but go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a privilege as God's children. We can have more of the presence of God in our lives, and we're, called to, we're meant to call out to Him for more of His Spirit as an experienced, powerful reality in us. But my point is this, friend, that what distinguished John, what made him special, what made him unique as a Nazarite is now the norm. 
in the church of God. The Spirit of God is in you. Child of God. This brings me to the last thing I want to say here. John was given a gospel mission. He was given a commission from God. And you see it here in what Gabriel says about him. He says in verse 16, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's the action of repentance, when someone turns back to God. and He's going to be instrumental in turning people back to God. And he'll go before him, I suppose that means before Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So people are going to experience radical life change, firstly in their orientation toward God, but then also with their relationships with each other, particularly in the context of families where God begins to heal and mend and redeem society when people turn back to him. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now let me just explain what we're seeing in John's life before we, we relate it to our own. If you ask the question, what was John's mission? What does John's mission look like? It looked like this, this beautiful, kind of almost paradoxical combination of confrontation and invitation, or of a kind of breaking that he was he was like a hammer that it was breaking people. In, in terms of the conviction and the power with which he confronted sin, but then also drawing them into healing by inviting them into the waters where they would, be, they would experience the cleansing power of God and, and rise up into a new life. And both those things are true of him at the same time. If you went out to hear John, I think you'd feel a bit nervous. I think you'd feel slightly on edge. I think it would, it would have triggered some people listening to John preach because he was so direct, because he got in the faces in confronting and exposing sin. It's the reason, of course, why he gets executed some years later. And in that sense, he embodies that spirit of Elijah, a prophet who went before him. He's often related to Elijah, compared to him, or described as a kind of like the embodiment of Elijah. Why? Well, because Elijah was doing this stuff all the time. This is what Elijah did. The most amazing story is in 1 Kings 18. The, the contest on Mount Carmel. But, you know, when, when, when the nation are giving themselves to the worship of idols, and particularly to an idol called Baal, Elijah comes in with that kind of prophetic confrontation and challenge, and he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? You know, you're calling yourself followers of God, but you're also, you're also worshiping a false idol. Isn't this, isn't this always the problem of God's people? The danger that our hearts are given to lesser things than God. Things that take a hold of us. Things that take our affections. That take our desires. That divert us away from God's plan and path. That, 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 that tip us into areas of sin in our lives. It's always idolatry. He says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? You know, vacillating. Two, kind of t- that, that, conf- that conflict within your own soul. I, I want this, but I also want this. And he brings the confrontation. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, is God, then follow him. Now let's just make up your mind and be wholehearted either way. Don't sit in the middle. And it seems to me that John, John was like that. He was the axe that splits the wood. He was the hammer that brings the crushing weight of the force, the power and conviction of the Spirit in people's lives. But in the next breath, there was the invitation. Look, if you feel the conviction of God challenging your sin, if you're aware of dirt and darkness in your life that, that has no place in the child of God, if you know that your life is inconsistent with your confession, come. Get into the waters. Come and be baptized. Come and experience the cleansing power of God and walk in repentance. It may just be the case, by the way, that some of you haven't been baptized, even if you're a follower of Christ. We would love, it would be our privilege to wash you in the waters. I want to invite you to come and talk to us about that. This was John's invitation. Why? Well, because one of the prophecies that was written about him was that he was a kind of path maker for the coming of Christ. That he was bringing down the mountains and raising up the valleys in order to create a level path for the coming of Jesus. In other words, there was a breaking aspect to his preaching to bring conviction of sin 
and a raising up, a healing, a, a binding aspect to his preaching in order to, that people would experience the grace of God in renewing and transformation. They could, and listen, friend, I want you to see this is, this is our calling entirely. This is what we are. The church of God is a path-making community paving the way for Christ to come into lives and come into this world and come into communities and come into families and to bring renewal. Some of that is the smashing down of the mountains, the, the, all the things built up in, in opposition to Christ. The confrontation, the hammer that breaks the rock. And Christ cannot enter a person's life until they feel something of the weight of the conviction and, and guilt of their sin in which they desperately recognize, I cannot change myself. I am not worthy. I need a savior. But Christ also comes in then to bind up and to heal, to wash away, to, to, to make the wounds new again, and to bring the transforming power from the inside. So he heals your life, and then he heals your relationships, and he heals families marriages and communities and the gospel brings transformation in this way so that everything that was true about John as a forerunner pointing to the first coming of Christ is now true about you as somebody whose mission in life is to bring Christ into the situations and relationships in which God has put you Paul describes this as a, a ministry of reconciliation. He says that we are ambassadors of Christ. Ambassadors, they, they broker peace deals of reconciliation between nations. Well, the church of God is present on this earth to bring the peace of God and reconciliation with God himself so the world can be renewed and healed. This is why God has you here, brother, sister. To walk in the path and the mission and the calling that God gave to us in prototype form in John the Baptist, but now is the calling of the church. Why is this so vital? Friends, I would, I would want you to see that everything about John the Baptist that made him so distinctive is now generally owned in our own lives as part of our calling. If he, was, if he was a Nazarite that made him separate from others, you, friends, the church, are Nazarites. Called into this extraordinary dignity of being God's children, serving him with the same power, the same spirit in you, working through you, the same message, the same confrontation with the world, but also the same invitation, the same mission to bring Christ into the nations. I want to pray as we close. I want to ask that the Lord will bring a kind of clarity to what we've been discovering. I think when we're walking around in haziness and a lack of clarity. Our lives lack direction. They lack purpose. When you see what the New Testament says about you, you become like an arrow that flies true and straight. Father, I want to ask you, Lord, these precious, precious friends, the brothers and sisters in Christ, this church, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will be speaking to take hold of us. We don't want to go on limping between two opinions. We don't want to live lives that are in any way lackluster or compromise. We want, Lord, to be yours as John was yours. We want to hear the words the angel spoken over him as though they were spoken over us specifically and directly understand that we have been supernaturally conceived in the spirit and therefore for a purpose called to you to understand that there's greatness over every life 
because of the immeasurable dignity of what it means to be your child living under the light of the gospel. To know that this holiness is ours in Christ, cleansed as we are from all our sin. To know your spirit in us, Lord, the powerful spirit, the might, immeasurable might and power of the spirit of God in us to bring about Christ-like transformation. To hear that we have a mission, that we are here to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation, to bring healing through the gospel on our lips. And I pray, Lord, that where there has been confusion, where there's been haziness, where there's been lack of clarity, where there's been um, a murkiness around these things, Lord, I pray that you'll, you'll speak clearly to brothers and sisters here, that they will know this is what I'm living for. This is, this is what I'm here on earth to do. And may the power of the same Spirit who has raised Christ from the dead and now lives in us, may that power awaken us as the force that we are meant to be, the church of God. The Spirit of Elijah, the Spirit of John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit in us. May you begin to awaken new desires and dreams within our hearts, Lord, within our souls. Yearnings to serve you. Yearnings to glorify you where we are. The sickness with sin that allows us to, to vomit it out and get rid of it out of our lives. A cherishing of the sweetness of your presence and of the gospel. So that we want to go and find you in the secret places as John did out in the wilderness eyes ablaze with love for you may we be like that Lord Spirit of God I want you to stir us we don't want to be um, in any way cool to the things of God we want to be alive and awake and fiery I pray for your grace now upon us in Jesus name Amen